This is Brad Marchand, and you're listening to Breaking the Ice with Josh Dolan. I don't think he would ever let a pizza get out the door before he buried the whole thing, so he likes to eat that kid. I think I see you guys. What's going on? Hey, hey Mr. Grayson. Can you hear us? I can hear you and I can see you. Excellent. Beautiful. Now, now that I see you both, I want to cancel the show. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did work in radio before. This was never a problem. Yeah. You're going to do yeah, that old is... joke. You both had a face for radio. Absolutely, <laughs> sir. Yep. That's why I was in radio for a very long time. Uh. <laughs> It's good to see you guys. You're up in Boston? Yes. Uh, well, I'm technically in Worcester right now. And uh, Josh is in, where are you, Holliston? Holliston, which is basically the woods, like 20 miles out of Boston. So Yeah. I worked in Worcester, Massachusetts. There was a place there called the Centrum. Mm-hmm. Worcester. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it's still there. And Frank Sinatra was one, I think maybe he was the first show that they had in that venue when they first built it. Yeah. Were you with Frank when you were there? I, I toured, with, yeah, with Frank. You know, I, I toured, but and I have a great story that I'll we can tell you. Are we on the air now? Are we rolling now? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. we're rolling. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story that that I that I treasure and I talk about it in my one man show in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, one night, Frank did the show, and afterward, I went to a, the restaurant uh, not far from right across the street from the Centrum with the band, a bunch of guys in the band, and the guitarist Ron Anthony said to me see those two young girls over there at another table she had two pretty young girls uh, and he said they wept all during Frank's show and they laid flowers at his feet while he was singing and they sat and they wept and I said really and and, and uh, as I was checking out after after would get my coat it was cold and I had checked my coat in and the two girls came up and one of them said oh you're funny we really enjoyed your show I said thank you I said can I ask you a question how old are you? And she said, I'm 20. And I said, and how old's your girlfriend? She said, that's my sister. She's 18. And I said, the reason I'm asking, you seem awful young to be Sinatra fans. And she said, well, my mother and father love Frank Sinatra. And all of our childhood, we heard Frank Sinatra music. They actually had a blow up of his album put on the mantle in the living room. And my mom and dad died last year, four months apart. And uh, my dad died first. And she said, my mom died. And before she died, my sister and I were by her bedside talking to her one night and she was telling us that we were actually conceived of Frank Sinatra's music that they used to play Frank Sinatra when they made love and she said and that she said we were actually conceived of his music so tonight while we were while we were watching the show we felt our parents presence there and that's why we laid flowers at his feet and we and we cried and it was a very touching story and about two weeks later I'm at Frank's house and I was telling him this story and he said to me did you get their name? And that was the biggest mistake I ever made because I know he would have sent them something. And I didn't. I was so taken by the moment, you know. Uh, but, but it made me realize that probably there were probably thousands of children around the world that were conceived of Frank Sinatra's music, you know. Well, yeah, if you want to create a mood, a romantic mood, Frank was definitely the go-to. Um, the the way, what would Frank though, put on? Yeah, really, yeah. Would Frank put himself on when he was trying to get someone in the mood? Uh, you know, that's a so, great question. John Wayne once said to him, he was in a bar with John Wayne and Catalina Island one time. He said it was like 2 o'clock in the morning and a bunch of guys in a bar. And one of Frank's songs came on the jukebox. 
you know, one of those lonely saloon songs that Frank was singing. And John Wayne looked down the bar and all the guys were looking down at their drink and John Wayne turned to Frankie and said, who do you listen to when you feel like these guys? <laughs> <laughs> I think the real question here, Mr. Dreesen, is how many children were conceived while listening to one of your albums? Well, you know, there were, there were a lot of breakups over that time. And even on my album, <laughs> while they were in bed. <laughs> I, got a, I got an album uh, called That White Boy is Crazy. I did an album in front of an all-black audience. I'm the only white comedian ever to do an album in front of an all-black audience called That White Boy is Crazy. Because uh, I used to work black nightclubs before I ever, there, was, there were no comedy clubs when I started out. You know, as you know, Tim Reed and I were America's first black and white comedy team. Yeah, yeah. Was, we were the last. And uh, we wrote a book called Tim and Tom and American Comedy in Black and White that may, may become a Netflix series now, a six one hour series that we're pitching of what it was like touring the nation in 1969 to 1975 as the first black white comedy team when there were no comedy clubs. So we worked all black clubs, what they affectionately called the chicken, uh, the Chitlin circuit. Um, the, the 20 grand in Detroit, the High Chaparral in Chicago, the Burning Spear in Chicago, um, the Club Hardham in Atlantic City, but the Sugar Shack in Boston was, was an all-black club. And, and uh, you know, we, then later I began to work the black clubs when a team stood up. And, uh, and I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood, so I played basketball on an all-black basketball team. I played football on an all-black football team. I, I um, uh, did a lot of routines about what it was like being the only white kid in an all-black situation. So whenever I did the Tonight Show and Dinah Shore and Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas and I'd be doing these routines, white people kept saying to me, do black people laugh at your material? Do black people laugh at your material? And I got so sick of hearing that, I went and did an album in front of an all-black audience. And, and I had, had the album and I had CDs made up. So whenever somebody say, do black people laugh at your material? I'd hand them the CD and say, give me twelve ninety nine, and you can find out for yourself. <laughs> But again, I tell you, the reason I called it that white boy's crazy, Richard Pryor wanted me to call it that honky's crazy. Because, you know, he had an album that N-word's crazy. You, you can't say it. <laughs> <N-words>. <laughs> Richard said to me, Tom, you could call your album that honky's crazy because I had that N-word's crazy. I said, to be honest with you, no black guy in my life that I grew up with ever called me a honky. They called me white boy. And affectionately, they'd say that even today, if I went back home and they were arguing about a game that we played or something, they'd say, I scored two touchdowns. White boy was there. White boy, come here. Tell, tell him white boy was there. You know, I was 12 years old when I found out my name wasn't white boy, you know. <laughs> I, I think it's, a, it's just astounding that you were in really the only, like you said, the only biracial comedy duo ever. There hasn't really been one since, right? Not at all. That's more alarming than, you know, that speaks volumes. When we say we were America's first black and white comedy team, that in itself is something. But yeah. we were the last. <laughs> we were the last. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's astounding to me. And at the time you started, it was like the apex of the civil rights battle in this country. 1968, I mean, that was like right in the middle of a lot of uh, chaos and upheaval and a lot of people fighting and you know, uh, Martin Luther King uh, assassinated that year. I mean, that, that's, to me, that's amazing. And it does, I don't think it gets enough credit, uh, you know, the, that it really deserves because I can't even imagine you guys walking down the street together was controversial enough, I'm sure, but getting on a stage and doing the kind of jokes you were doing, which were kind of almost like, like, educational you know you were like kind of joking about each other's cultures reacting to each other and stuff like that i would imagine like you got laughs but i would imagine there was a lot of 
resistance or, or um, you know, belligerence towards what you were doing? Well, it was interesting. 95% of the people, I think, that saw us like this, you know, we end up working all black clubs. We end up working the Playboy circuit. We got an album out and stuff like that. But I would say 95% of America ex embraced us and accepted us. But there's that one element. If, if, there was, if we were an all-black club, if there was a black guy who hated white people, hated them with a passion, he wasn't mad at uh, me. He was mad at Tim for being with me. See, if there was a white guy, who, a redneck, who hated black people with a passion, he wasn't mad at Tim. He was mad at me for being with Tim. I was the N-word lover, and they didn't mind calling me that. Three guys got me in a, in a men's room down in Atlanta, Georgia, and, uh, you know, and, and tried to do a number on me. I, I boxed when I was in the service, and I, I grew up in the streets, you know, and, and I'm not saying I'm a tough guy, but... But I had my nose broke twice, so that ought to tell you, I'm not. <laughs> but I won a few and lost a few in my day. But it, it, that was the element we were up against. As you say, Martin Luther King was just assassinated. We were five years removed from the Civil Rights Act being passed. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, the world was in upheaval. The Vietnam War was raging. I had just gotten out of the service. Tim just got out of college. Students were protesting the Vietnam War all over America. African-Americans were rioting in every major city, including my neighborhood where I grew up at, one of the largest riots in the country was right where I grew up at. And, and, and it was just, America was an upheaval. And here we were going around, we weren't preaching, we were just trying to make people laugh. We did, a, every, anywhere there was racial tension, we went. There were, we did 11 prisons in one year. We did um, high schools and colleges. We just went to make people laugh. We weren't preaching, but the mere fact that we were on stage getting along together, working together, making people laugh, spoke volumes. One of the things that I'll take to my grave, that more than anything that's ever happened in my lifetime, one of the things I'll take to my grave, where Tim and I performed that so many times, I can't tell you how many times a young black guy or a young white guy would come up to Tim and I, and they'd have the same story. It happened time after time. The white guy said, I got a black friend and I want to reach out to the guy. But if I do, the, the white guys are going to give me a bad time. He said, but watching you and Tim performing, I'm going to reach out to my black friend. And a black guy would say, you know, I got a white buddy and I like the guy and I want to reach out to him. But, you know, the brother's going to wear me out if I do. But watching you and Tim today, I'm going to reach out to my friend. That meant more to me and Tim, I think, than anything that comedy thing that we ever accomplished. Yeah, that was that's why I said it was almost like instructional. Like the jokes you were telling, you know, and Tim, Tim doing his thing where it was like, this is, well, this is how a black guy would act to this particular thing. And um, it is a strange thing that there hasn't been another duo like that since then. And why do you think that is? Well, I think that, that, that there is probably more of a division than we really realize, you know, um, still going on today, um, even though we've come a long way. You know, there's probably still a division, but also, and, and, and the argument could be, there aren't many comedy teams today. When I started out, there were a lot of comedy teams, you know, right. and, and, and uh, working the Playboy circuits and, and a lot of comedy teams. And today there's not a lot of comedy teams, and that's, that should tell you, there's not a lot of money in stand-up comedy. And so, it's, you know, one of the greatest things that happened, I teased him all the time, my heart broke when the team stood up. But it cheered up a little bit when they gave me a check and I didn't have to split it with anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but especially like you were saying, being the first and then like when, when you start out in comp, like when I first started doing stand up, the, the number one thing you're thinking about before you go out is, oh my God, what if they don't like me? And I feel like, especially during that time, you must be like, oh, well, the crowd is going to be, you know, not so 
warm towards us, like we, we get to get them on our side really quick. And now in, like you were saying, there's still division, but like today, do you think it would be easier? And have you guys ever thought about doing a reunion tour? Well, people have asked us that all the time, <clears throat> and I don't really want to do a reunion, but I went on a book tour with Tim, and, you know, we'd get up and, and goof off of one another because we, we're still the best of friends, and his, his children and I, his children call me Uncle Tom. They've been calling me that since they were little kids. They're grown children now. <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story. We were on a, uh, on a book signing tour. We went to Norfolk State College, where Tim had graduated from there, Norfolk State College, an all-black historical college. And that we were going to speak to the students. And prior to that, they had a buffet. And seven black professors and myself were at the buffet. And Tim's daughter uh, hadn't seen me in a long time. And uh, she came running in the, in the door. And she saw me. And she started hollering out, Uncle Tom, Uncle Tom, Uncle Tom. She's oh. And all these professors turned around and went, excuse me. And I said, <laughs> she's talking to me. <laughs> we, we joke about that all the time. The, the thing, that, the resistance, on the fourth time that we were ever on stage, a guy put a lit cigarette out in Tim's face uh, in a place in Chicago Heights called the Golden Horseshoe. After the show, some big redneck, uh, big guy who had, we found out later had played uh, and, and, uh, for the Philadelphia Eagles one year, and then he played, um, he was in the taxi squad for the Bears one year. He's a big guy. And uh, he, he walked past me and smashed a cigarette in Tim's face when we were sitting down. And I got up and I threw a punch that would, I, I really believe would have knocked out Muhammad Ali. And I'm exaggerating, but I threw a punch. <laughs> and he slipped and, and slipped me and, and I went over his shoulder and he pulled me across the table and broke the table with my legs. He just pummeled me. He was crushing me to his chest. I thought he broke my ribs. And it was a real Donnybrook. And then two of my Italian buddies jumped over the bar and, and uh, they, we all, three of us, it, it would just knock over tables and chairs and all that stuff. And he finally let free of me and I went up against the bar and my, I felt like my ribs were broken. There was a, a rail there and I put my foot up against the rail and there was, they were spinning around. I threw another punch and the, the owner of the place had come out and tried to break it up. And I hit the owner and knocked him flat. <laughs> All this is funny today. It was funny then. But anyhow, long story short, uh, it, was, it was just a terrible Donnybrook. And afterward, Tim and I were in a car and he was scarred up and I was beat up and we were on our way home. That was our fourth time on stage. And Tim looked over at me and he said, Welcome to show business. <laughs> but another time a guy took an ice ball at University of Illinois, packed an ice ball and threw it on stage and hit me in the face with it. Um, you know, and, and I went berserk because, you know, and, and the audience didn't hardly realize it. it came so fast that pow, hit me in the face. And even Tim didn't realize it and it stung my face. And at first I thought it was a bottle and that the wetness on my face was blood. But it, when I realized what happened was, it was in the dark, and the audience was in the darkness, and I grabbed the microphone, and I said, turn on the lights, you chicken shit, son of a bitch, and I'm court calling them all kinds of names. Now, the audience said it was part of the act all of a sudden. I went berserk, you know, and Tim didn't know what the hell was going on. And finally, when they realized, you know, somebody hit me in the face with it, afterward, it was just it was hard to recover the show. And Tim said to me later, he said, you know, you got to be more professional. I said, oh, man, hit me in the face with an ice ball. And Tim, you were stage right. You were on my, on my right-hand side. He went upstage for a second and the bit we were doing and the ice ball hit me. I said, he was aiming at you, you know, and Tim said, we ought to kill that guy. We ought to go out and we ought to find that guy. <laughs> now those are just a couple of incidents. Most of the time people really liked what we did and we would disarm them almost immediately. When we walked out on stage, black guy and a white guy, we got their attention right now. 
Yeah. You know, here's a, they didn't say, here's the biracial comedy team. Here's a comedy team with Tim and Tom. We walk out when people say, oh, what's this all about? You know, I, I'll tell you another real quick story. And, you know, I, I'm hogging this with you guys. At the Club Harlem in Atlantic City, that was the apex of the Chitlin circuit. When you got to the Club Harlem, this is before gambling. It was on Kentucky Avenue, before they had gambling in Atlantic City. Opening night, in most nightclubs in America, you started on a Monday and you closed Saturday night. The Club Harlem, you opened Saturday night and closed on the following Friday. First show was 10 o'clock at night. Second show was 2 o'clock in the morning. Third show was 6 o'clock Sunday morning, a.m., 6 a.m. It was called The Breakfast Show. And all the waiters and the waitresses and all the night people, all the pimps and the whores from Newark, from Brooks, Queens, Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn, Manhattan, they, all the pimps brought their whores down to the Club Harlem. They would see 1,300 and some people packed jam. And the opening act was Mama Lou Parks and her dancers, a heavy set black woman, and all of these young dancers doing all the dances of the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. They got the audience rocking, and there was a, a male singing group, then there was a female singing group, then there was comedy, and then the headliner would be Smokey Robinson or The Temptations or, or the, the OJs or, you know, <clears throat> acts like that. But that opening night, 1,350 people. It's in, the, in our book. The, the, the master ceremony said, ladies and gentlemen, got a comedy team here from Chicago. We want to welcome this team. They've never been to Chicago. Will you please welcome the comedy team of Tim and Tom? And Tim went out by himself. He said, we're really happy to be here. We just got in from Chicago, and it was snowing when we got here. And pretty soon you heard people saying, we? I don't see any we. I see he. Who the hell is he? We. And I slowly would come out stage left. It's an all-black audience, 1,300 black folks. And I'd come out stage left looking into the audience, you know, peeking in. Now that you hear them saying, uh-oh, what we got here? Uh-oh, look out, you know. <laughs> I'd slowly <laughs> work my way to center stage where Tim is still talking. And he'd look at me and say, where the hell you been, man? And I'd look out and I'd say, I, I don't see any of my people out there. And he'd say, no, I don't think any of your people are out there. And I'd put my arms around him and say, we better be funny. He'd say, what do you mean, we, white man? And then, boom. <laughs> we had him from that time on. We had him. That's, that's amazing. So you, you're, you were saying earlier that uh, Netflix is thinking about making a miniseries about <laughs> your experience with, with Tim Reed? Yeah, we're pitching it. Uh, we, we had the meeting all set up prior to this, our, you know, COVID-19 thing here. But uh, we're, we're going in the meeting and, and they seem very interested. If not them, we're going to sell this show. This is, we've got a, a great writer. This thing, we were going to do a, try to do a feature film based on our book. But when we sat down, every time we sat down, we just have way too much material. We've got so much material of what happened to us. And the fun we had, I mean, it's going to be a fun movie. It's not going to be another one of those preaching kind of movies. We had a lot of fun. We worked at Playboy Circuit, <laughs> 17 <laughs> Playboy clubs in America, including Boston Playboy, which I worked many times. Boston Playboy, but 17 Playboy clubs and then two resorts, Great Gorge and Lake Geneva. And that was some, and that was in the time of, oh, you know, just, I, I mean, it, what we, the things we did, we were both married at the time, and we're both ashamed of what we did. <laughs> but, well, but the, the fun we had, and the fun we had, the good times we had. <clears throat> the, the question I have about that is, who would you want to play you in the miniseries? Well, Brad Pitt's a little bit too old now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they keep asking that, but, but as time has gone by, um, you, know, you remember this guy, Ryan Filippi? He, yeah. He married to Reese Witherspoon. Good looking kid. Nice kid. Yeah. This is about 10 years ago when the book first came out. 
uh, Clint Eastwood's a real good buddy of mine, and Clint directed him in a film called Flags of Our Fathers. Mm -hmm. And Clint and I were having dinner in a place called Dantana's. And this kid, Ryan Filippi, he started walking toward our table. And all the young girls are going, oh, it's Ryan Filippi. Oh, it's Ryan. He's such a good-looking kid, right? He walks up to the table. He looked at me. He didn't look at me. He said, I read your book. And if they make a movie, I want to play you. And I looked up and I said, I was a lot better looking than you when I was your age. (laughs) 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 And he thought I was serious. And he got a long face. And the girls were fainting behind him. You know, I said, I'm only kidding, you know. But you know, I mean, there's a lot of good actors out there, um, young actors, and, and and as well as who would play Tim. All that's part of casting. We'd have to look at that. You know. But he'd have to be a guy who's real shy and quiet, because you know how I am. I'm so introverted. <laughs> I know we can barely get an answer out of you here for crying out loud. God, you have but, so uh, many great so, stories. Can I, that... can, I, can I swear on this interview? Is it? Oh yeah, sure, yeah. yeah. Well, I want to tell you a true story. A, a guy from Canada once called my manager, and he says. Uh, I got to interview your client, Tom Dreesen, and can you give me some kind of questions where I can get some response from him? And my manager said, ask him how his day went and then get the fuck out of his way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm embarrassed by that, but that's true. Oh, it's great, though. You have, you have so many great stories, and you're such a great storyteller. And I was, I was thinking, I've, I've been a fan of yours for a long time, and I remember I, I met you, at, well, not met, I was standing near you um outside the laugh factory on sunset boulevard and i remember you you walked out and i was like oh that's tom Dreesen." and i started thinking about how you were friends with frank sinatra and sammy davis jr and thinking about all the dean martin roasts and stuff and i i just got lost in my brain and then you walked away and you were gone i never got to introduce myself but (laughs) no but i remember you had on a red hat and i remember that you were just growing that beard at that time and then there was a girl behind you that she was uh, had on a purple dress yeah i remember that night real well (laughs) <laughs> well, well i'm glad you remembered but <laughs> but you have so many my car i said i wonder why that guy didn't ask me about frank sinatra and dean martin and <laughs> that could be a whole nother netflix series because <laughs> me and uh me and mike shu worked for a rock station waf here in boston and this was our our 50th year and i grew up listening to that radio station and I thought it was wild that I ended up on the radio station and then I was actually on the air in the final hour um, before it went off the air and I was I was actually thinking about your one-man show how you go through shining shoes as a young kid in Harvey Illinois and then you end end it with you carrying Frank Sinatra's casket like that must be still a wild thing to think about how you became so close to Frank. Yeah, well, the, the, the setup is, as, as, as I tell the audience, I started out shining shoes in bars in Harvey Online, as you say, and Sinatra was on the jukebox. And then it ends up with me carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. You know, uh, my one-man show, it's called, I, I'm, I'm going to change the title. It was called An Evening of Laughter and Stories of Sinatra. But I just finished writing a book called Still Standing, my journey from the streets and saloons to the stage and Sinatra. And so I think that's what I'm going to call my one man show now, still standing. It's a double entendre because I'm 50 years. I've been a stand-up comedian. This is my 50th year in show business. And I've been knocked down a lot in my life, but I keep getting back up again. And so it's a double entendre between the stand-up comedy and, 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 you know, and being knocked down and getting up. And, and, and I think that'll be the title of the show because after the team split up, you know, I, I wandered aimlessly most of my life before I ever 
got in the show business. And when I got in the show business, the first time I ever went on stage and got a laugh, it was like an epiphany. I knew this is what I wanted to do. I, 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 you know, you're a stand-up. There's no describing. But I, I've been, I, I've been praying at that time. God, what is it you want me to do? I'd be in a bar with my buddies at two o'clock in the morning, pounding them beers down, saying, "I don't belong here." But I didn't know where I belonged. And when I first got on that stage, and something I had written with Tim, it got a laugh. It was like one of those B movies where the dark clouds open up and the sun bursts through, and I, my whole being went, "Yeah, oh yeah." This is what I want to do. Oh, yeah. I, I couldn't sleep that. It was a Friday night. I got up the next morning. I went to the church that I was an altar boy in when I was a kid, where I went to school and went to church. And there was no service. It was a Saturday morning. And I got on my knees. I, I prayed. I said, God, I now know what I want to do. If you let me make my living as a comedian, I'll never ask for anything else. I promise I'll do charities. I'm doing all these promises, you know. And 50 years had gone by. I went back to that church last September and I gave the sermon and I told them the sermon was called the power of prayer. And, and I told them right there is where I knelt right down that spot. And I asked God, let me make my living as a comedian for 50 years. He's done that, you know, and I talked about the power of prayer and, and some other incidents that happened in my life. You know, I went all the way around here to say, but finally after the team split up, I was there, I was again, I, on my knees saying, I, I thought Tim and I would be the greatest comedy team that ever was. That was my dream. And, and, uh, and when team, Tim split up the team, he had, you know, was out with another woman and it was a long story. It's in our book, but it ended up breaking up the team and it broke my heart. Now I'm on the West coast sleeping in an old Nash Rambler, not my car, an abandoned car where the front seat went down. It was up on blocks and I'm hitchhiking to the comedy store, begging to work for free every night you know, waiting in line with all the other guys. And I'd been in show business for six years. Now I'm waiting in line with 18 and 19 year old kids, hoping to get on for free at the comedy store. And finally, after a month, I got an audition with Mitzi and I, and I passed and became a regular and, you know, boom, boom, boom. And a year goes by and next thing you know, I'm on the Tonight Show and my whole life changed. You know, one appearance on the Tonight Show. In 1975, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh yeah? You ever been on Johnny Carson? You haven't been on Jack Carson in the eyes of America. You weren't a comedian. You might want to be one or going to be one. So Freddie Prince did one appearance, got a sitcom the next day. I did one appearance and CBS signed me to a development deal the following day. A guy named Lee Curlin from New York saw me from CBS and changed my whole life. I mean, you know, I, my wife and I were separated in the beginning or back. I brought my kids back to the West Coast. And, and, and I never stopped working from that first Tonight Show. I did 61 appearances on the Tonight Show, but I never stopped working. And finally, Frank Sinatra wanted me with him. Sammy Davis had me with him for three years. And then Frank Sinatra took me on the road for 14 years. And, and you know, the rest is history. Were you with Sammy Davis before the I or after the I? Before the, oh yeah, no, after the I, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, you, know, you want a great story? Frank Sinatra had a bodyguard named Jilly Rizzo. He had one eye. He had it knocked out in a fight. Sammy Davis Jr. had one eye. One Christmas, Frank bought a set of binoculars, sawed them in half. He sent one to Sammy and went to Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's, That's amazing. hilarious. <laughs> so how, how long total did you tour with Frank? I mean, it was like, was it like 20 years? No, almost 14 years. I mean, I knew okay. him, you know, but, but I, it was almost... Uh, 14 years in 45, 50 cities a year. Uh, the, a guy from the New York Times once wrote that I, I was on stage with Frank Sinatra more than any other artist because 
Pat Henry had toured with him before me, and but Frank was doing film in those days, movies in those days. When I toured with Frank, we were doing concerts, 20,000 seat arenas, you know, the, the, all around the country, big arenas and 40,000 people in Hawaii, you know. For a comedian, and, and you can you understand this, it's one thing going on stage in a comedy room and there's 120 people, and, and it's another thing going on stage in front of 40,000 people, you know. And Where they're not expecting comedy. <laughs> Josh, by the way, Josh, this is what, it's, what I'd say to you. Josh, you're opening for Frank Sinatra. This is what happened to me every night. Nassau Memorial Coliseum or wherever. I'd say, Josh, it's five minutes before the show. Josh, there's 20,000 people out there, and I want you to go out there, Josh. You're in the round. I want you to stand in the center of 20,000 people, and for the next 40 minutes, I want you to make them laugh. Oh, one more thing, Josh. I want you to hold their attention and make them laugh, but I want you to make them laugh when you want them to laugh. I want you to pull the strings on the emotions of 20,000 people. No props, no tricks, no charts, no special arrangement, no orchestra, nothing. Just you and 20,000 people. And one more thing, Josh, not one of them came to see you. <laughs> that's no anxiety at all. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and that, that, that's what I had to do every night. Fortunately, I had, had some experience. I toured with Sammy for years. I, I, had a lot of them, I had done a lot of Tonight Show, so I had some experience and the audience had, some of them had seen me in these shows, you know, so it, it, that, that helped a little bit, but it was intimidating every night to go out there and get that audience because sometimes they were still filing in and you, you're, you know, first of all, the orchestra, which the lights would go down low and people go, Oh, and the orchestra go, bum, ba, da, bum, bum. they go, ah, cause they think Frank's coming out. They say, and then oh. the, the comedy oh, started no. show Tom Reese and now you hear, Oh, and as you're going through the stage, you know, that almost out. seems like it's cruel to start like New York, New York, and then and then have you walk out into that. Yeah. That seems like a cruel joke to me. But you know what? As a comedian, you'll appreciate this. You know, what I did was I learned a couple tricks, and I teach comedians this. I walked out. First of all, I would say, how many of you out there thought Frank Sinatra was coming out? Applaud, please. How many thought Frank was coming out? Need applaud. And I'd say, I know just how you feel. I'm a little bit disappointed myself. You know, now, the joke was on me. Then I'd say, how many of you people out there are in this arena for your very first time applaud? And they'd applaud. I'd say, how many of you out there are seeing Frank Sinatra live your very first time applaud? And they'd applaud. I'd say, how many of you out there aren't wearing any underwear? Applaud. Right now. You see what I was doing? I talk, you react. I talk, you react. I was bringing them into my aura. You know, if I would have said, raise your hand, it wouldn't have worked. You know, how many of you, I said, applaud. I talk, you react. I was bringing them into me all around the arena, walking around. I wouldn't waste some real good material up front. First, I get them point to me. I talk, you react. I talk, you react. And then I would start doing material. And then you also get them on your side by saying, I realize I'm not Frank Sinatra. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, think, I think most people would realize that. Not all. You know. Yeah. <laughs> The point is, is you know, is getting, you've got to bring them to you. There's a lot of little tricks you can learn, and, 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 then, and then you start doing, and then the first couple of jokes were on that area. I would research that area with something that just happened in that area, something that everybody was reading about, talking about, or something maybe just happened in the arena, whatever it was. My first two jokes were about localizing, so that, you know, whatever city you were in, that I knew something about the local community, you know. Now, is that something that you kind of, like, picked up and learned on your own, or did you learn tricks like that or techniques from like Sammy Davis or like um, Frank Sinatra? Cause I know those guys were super professionals and then, you know, hanging around with them, you must've got 
so much knowledge out of them. Well, I, I did those, I, those things there came out of desperation. Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. You know, when I first went out in those audiences and I realized I got to do something to bring them into me quick because you start doing material and they're not laughing and pretty soon you've lost them and you've got to get them into you quick, get them into you. And you know, I'm in charge here. This is my show. This is my stage. This is my, I, I own the stage, you know, I'll tell you, Sammy Davis once told me the first time I ever opened for Sammy was in Las Vegas and I had never been to Las Vegas and it was at Caesar's palace and we, they had rehearsal and everything. And now we we're all in our dressing rooms. The show was going to start in a couple hours. And I walked out of my dressing room. I'd never worked in Vegas and I'm walking on stage at Caesar's palace by myself. I'm just getting familiar with the stage. And as you know, stage has the boards, what they call the boards, you know, on the stage. Sammy saw me and came out of his dressing room. He walked out and he said, are you a little nervous, babe? He always called me, baby, a little nervous, babe. I said, well, yeah, it's opening night and, and I'm opening for you. You know, my name's on a marquee with Sammy Davis Jr. And it's my first time in Vegas. And I said, yeah. And he said, see these boards down here on the stage? I said, yeah. He said, you own those boards. You earn those boards. You pay dues to get here. He said, this is your stage, not theirs. If they could do what you do, they'd be up here. They can't do what you do. That's why they're out there. So don't let them take this from you. This is your stage. And I tell young comedians this for years. Here's the way it goes, Josh. You're, 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 here's the way you walk out on stage every night. Most comedians think of when they're new, they think of it like that's their house. I'm invading their territory. I'm walking into their territory. This is our house. The way it works, Josh, I tell the young comedians, your wife says to you, we got 20 people in the living room and dinner isn't ready yet, honey. Go, 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 go tell them some of them stories about you growing up and, uh, and blah, blah, blah. And you walk out into the living room and you say, hey, dinner's going to be ready in a few minutes. But, but I got to tell you, when I was growing up and I was going to school, it's a conversation, not a presentation. Is it your act? You're damn right it's your act. It's your job to make it look like it's not your act. It's a conversation you're holding. And this is our house. So I tell the young communities, think of that. When you walk in that room, that isn't, you're not invading their territory. They're in our house, you know, and it gives you a better state of mind is my point. Yeah. Did, did, was there ever a time, and I know, you know, part of being, I, I've never been a stand-up comic. I've been in bands. I've been on the radio, you know, for a long time. But is there, was there ever a point where you were like, I better get out of my house because this isn't going very well? You know, is it like, like bombing is a part of being a stand-up comic and it helps you evolve from what I'm told. So was there ever a time that you were just like, okay, this isn't my house anymore. The, uh, the inmates have taken over the asylum and I got I to gotta find the back door. Yeah. Earlier in your career, uh, one time I was on a show called The Phil Donahue Show with four other comedians and, uh, and a woman asked a question from the audience. She said, did you ever bomb? And I said, we trained in bombing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but when you're new you're, you're of course you're going to bomb and, and that's the part if somebody had said to me I want you to go see this young comedian Tom this new comedian guy or girl and I'd go see and they did it was like an open mic night or something Josh you know those are nightmares and, oh, and yeah. it didn't do good and, and, and they'd say uh, what'd you think and I said I'm going to come back tomorrow and if that kid's back up on that stage they're going to be fine because that's part of it that's part of it you know uh, of, you know, getting back up again, getting back up again, you know, um, you know, it, 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 and in the earlier days, <clears throat> you know, you, you bomb, you bomb and, and you do a good set, you know, and, and it's, oh, now then you, then you, you bomb, you bomb, you bomb and, and you do a pretty good set. And then, you know, pretty soon you, you, you bomb and you did a good set. You bomb it. Now, now you did two good sets in a row and then, then you had a, had a bad night. Then you did five sets in a row. Now you're starting to get consistent. 
and, and that's when you start to becoming more of a pro. You know, when you get consistent and and, you, and, and especially if you if you have the courage to tape your shows, look at them, and realize what you're doing wrong. You know, there's so many mistakes you make when you're when you're new, when you're brand new. You know, editing, putting material, uh, you know, staying with a piece of material too long. Look, when you're writing a joke, there's a couple of basic rules. Number one, comedy is nine-tenths surprise. The audience laughs because they didn't think you were going to say that or do that. So the setup line has to hide the punchline. The other rule is there are no victimless jokes. Who's the victim in this joke? The society, the, the, the guy who's dating, the punk rocker dating your daughter, uh, you, Rodney Dangerfield, I get no respect. Somebody's got to be the victim in this joke, you know. And, and, and the other is the setup line hides the punchline. And then it's also like the the organizing. Like I, I learned a lot from uh, like Lenny Clark, who we had on yesterday, like about what jokes to start with, where they're like, no, you, you want to get them like on board with you before you go straight to that material because they, you don't want to come off as like a jerk right away. Let them know who you are before you go for the hard hitting stuff. When the, you know what? When you start out, you know, the, the first six to 10 minutes of your material should be about you. If we went to a party and you walked up to me and you said, hi, I'm Josh. And I say, Josh, says, hey, Tom, two guys walked into a bar and I, I don't even know you yet. And you're telling me a joke. <laughs> you know, I'm like, who's this guy? But when you walk out on stage and you start telling them about you, where you're from, what, what, what's going on in your shop, you start telling stuff, funny material about where you grew up at and so forth and so on. After about 10 minutes, we start to liken you. Oh, now I see where his accent came from or that, you know what I mean? You, you tell us a little bit about you. The first six to ten minutes should be about you. What, I'm talking about when you're new, when you're when you're, you know, when you're already well known, and and, and eight hundred people in the audience came to see you. You can walk out and talk about the government, the airlines, whatever you want to talk about. They yeah. came to see you. You know what I mean? When you're new, introduce yourself to the audience with your material. It's uh, you, uh, you said that there were no there are no victimless jokes, and it seems like in the past like five years, especially that everybody was a victim and they have what, you know, cancel culture and you can't make jokes about things you made jokes about 10 years ago. So when you say there's no victimless jokes, are there any victims left that you can joke about without, you know, people protesting your show or shutting you down or, or your agent dropping you or anything like that? Let me tell you what you're talking about, politically correct people. <clears throat> if you look on the internet, <clears throat> you'll see Tom Dreesen rants about political correctness. And I'll basically give you a synopsis of what I said. I mean, he said, who are these people? These politically correct people, who are they? We don't know who they are. We keep apologizing to you and we don't know who you are. We know who the Republicans are. We know who the Democrats are. We know who the independents are. Help. We know the, who the Moose, the Kiwanis, the Elks, we know who the Ku Klux Klan is, but we don't know who you are and we keep apologizing to you. You know, there's a First Amendment, you know, people died, so we have the right to say whatever you want to say. You don't have to listen to us. You can walk out of the room. You can turn us off, but we have a right to say it. Millions of, I mean, thousands of men and women died so that we'd have that right. And we keep apologizing to you and we don't know who you are. So this is my final statement to you. Kiss my black ass. <laughs> 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 is that politically incorrect enough for you? <laughs> That's fine with me. <laughs> but you see, there's only one rule in comedy: be funny. That's the only rule. You know, you, you, you know. The other thing that I would tell Josh, I, I, I talked to you as a young comedian, but you've been doing it for a while. But when I toured with Sammy Davis Jr., 
he had a wonderful thing hanging in his dressing room that he couldn't pay heed to, but it said, I don't know the meaning of success, but I do know the meaning of failure. It's when I try to make everybody love me. And you can't do that. If you're a bartender, a bricklayer, a truck driver, you know, radio talk show host, you cannot make everybody love you. So quit trying, you know, do what you do. You know, do, 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 you know, do, do what you feel you were put on this planet to do and do it the best you can. And I promise you, if you do that, a lot of people are going to dislike you, but a lot of people are going to like you and you move right. on. Well, Tom, thank, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I know your time is very valuable, even though we're all locked down right now. <laughs> and uh, um, Shu, is there, there anything last that you wanted to ask Tom before we? Uh, no, well, no. I, well, actually, yeah. I mean, how are, you, are, how are you handling isolating yourself? Are you isolating yourself with COVID-19 going around and this, this pandemic? How are you handling the time? How do you stay busy? Well, you know, one of the things I'm doing is um, I'm, I'm doing like podcasts for people that just are just as miserable human beings as I've ever met. My oh, I didn't mean that. I tell you, I tell you what I'm doing, <clears throat> and, and I'm doing a lot of. Uh, I um, am a motivational speaker. I give motivation talks to corporate America and to colleges and, and to high schools wherever it's needed. But on four subjects: perception visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. And so I've been putting that on Facebook. Every, every couple of days, I'll put on three or four minutes to people that are locked in like all of us are. And I try to motivate them, you know, uh, on, on, on these subjects, you know. And so that's, that's fun to do. I'm doing that. And then also I'm doing some writing. I'm writing, you know, material as I, as I always do. I'm uh, preparing to do a Zoom broadcast in about three weeks. Everywhere I went, people have said to me, uh, tell me a Sinatra story. Please tell me a Sinatra fans all over. Um, tell us a Sinatra story. Every time I went on Letterman's show, they would always say, and, and uh, uh, you know, tell me, a, if we have time, I'll tell you a great Letterman story. I just talked to him yesterday on the phone, but anyhow, he, he, you know, David always say, tell me a Sinatra story. So I put together this show and I've done it around the country, but now Sinatra fans say, gee, I wish I could see your show. I live in Anchorage, Alaska, and I can, I live in Portland, Oregon, and you don't come this way, or I live in Boston, you know, and, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to charge them, but I'm going to do it 90 minutes talking about Frank Sinatra and I'll answer their questions. And I'm going to do that on Zoom in, in, in about three weeks. Um, that's another thing I'm preparing for now to do just what I'm doing to you guys now, only talking to an audience. I can talk to one. If there's one rich guy who wants me all alone just to talk to him about Frank, I'll do that. And there's a, lot, a guy in Toronto once hired me, flew me, paid me a lot of money. Flew me up to Toronto to talk to 12 of his buddies. They were all Sinatra fans. And I, and I did basically my one-man show to this guy in his house. You know. So I'm wow. going to do it for hundreds of people or for, you know. But can I tell you a quick letter and story? Yes, Oh, please. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, Dave and I are the best of friends and been the best of friends. He calls me about a month ago. He said, Tom, every time you do an interview or every time I do an interview, we tell the same story. Where you were on at the comedy store. I had just arrived that day from Indianapolis with my red pickup truck. And I came, you came off stage and I said to you, I really enjoyed your set, Mr. Dreesen. <laughs> and I said, what is your name? He said, Dave. I said, well, you're from me, so I'm from Indianapolis. And I said, oh, I'm from Chicago. And I start talking sports with him. And because I'm so extroverted, I kept talking to him and talking to him. And, um, and we became friends, you know, and I didn't realize what a shy guy he was, how introverted he was, or I would have respected that. 
But by the time I realized that, we were good friends and we've been buddies ever since. He said, well, you always tell that story. That's how we met. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I'm going oh, to shut this up. Wow. That's probably <laughs> anyway, But I said, he said, he said, uh, he said, it's a boring story, Tom. It's a boring story. I said, but it's the truth. He said, I don't care. It's boring. From now on, let's tell people. You came off stage. I stole some, some material from you, and you beat the shit out of me in the parking lot. <laughs> I said, now, why would I tell that story? He said, well, because it's a better story. I said, Dave, you have millions of fans. I'm going to walk down the street and I'd be dodging bullets. He said, it's a better story. Now, two weeks go by. He calls me. He said, do you know the governor of Illinois? <clears throat> and I said, I met him, but I don't know him. I said, but I do know the speaker, the, the Senate Majority Leader, John Cullerton, in, in Illinois. He said, well, he had a serious problem. His wife had a, uh, um, a, a son that was a grown kid that was autistic, and they had a plot of land there that all the autistic adults were planting got, uh, uh, corn and, and, and beans and stuff like that. And when it grew, they would give it to the homeless. And now the state was going to come and take that property away. And Dave said, I want to try to help if I can. <clears throat> I put him in touch with the speaker for the Senate Majority Leader of the Illinois General Assembly. And, but I told John Cullerton, I said, John, he said, oh, Tom, I'll help Dave. We're going to take care of that problem. It's already being taken care of. But I'll, I'll take care of that. I said, would you talk to Dave? He said, oh, I'd love to talk to Dave Leverman. I said, do me a favor. When you tell him you're going to help him, tell him the only reason you're helping him is because I beat the shit out of him in the parking lot at the comedy store. <laughs> he said, okay, I'll do that. So he talks to Letterman. Ten minutes later, my phone rang. I said, hello. And Letterman said, didn't I tell you it's a better story? I told you it's a better story. That's awesome. That's, That's awesome. amazing. Well, Tom, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time with us today. And I, I mean, I could listen to you for hours and hours, but I guess I'll have a chance to do that on Facebook pretty soon. And then hopefully on uh, Netflix or whatever platforms oh, we yeah. pick up uh, the miniseries. I'm very much looking forward to that. Cause that to me, that is such an amazing story and the courage that you both of you guys had to you and Tim Reed to get up at that time in history and do comedy about what was going on is, is very, something is just hugely courageous to me. So I'm looking forward, and I hope somebody picks up that miniseries and it, and it, it happens to let people know. So. I hope so too, yeah. The world wasn't ready for us. We were way before our time. Dave Letterman said we should have called our book Before Your Time. The world wasn't ready for us, and they did a lot to break, us, to break the team up, but they couldn't break up our friendship. And that exists today. By the way, I may come to Boston. Michael Ruggioni is a real good buddy of mine, and he wants me oh. to come and do his charity. Uh, and he's talking to me about it now, but this shutdown, I was going to do it in May. But if I do come there, I'd like to see you guys. Maybe we could, you know, hook up, have a cup of coffee or something like that. You know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be amazing. That'd be that'd great. That'd be awesome. And, uh, oh. oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Josh. Oh, I was just going to say, before we go, do you, have, uh, do you have one of your favorite Frank stories you want to tell us? Let's <laughs> well, see one of what I've got so many Frank Sinatra stories. I'm trying to find one. Well, you want me to? I, I can tell you a poignant story that that exemplifies the kind of man he really was. Um, and and uh, but we were coming out of the Waldorf Astoria in, in New York one time, uh, going out the back way, heading to a gig <clears throat> because Frank couldn't go out the front door; he'd get mobbed. But he had an apartment in the back of the Waldorf Astoria in New York, and the limo was waiting for us. We were going to rush out and do a show. And as we were running out, um, the security was taking us to the limo, and a woman jumped out of the doorway. The doorman told me she'd been hiding back there for like five hours. 
in the back and she said screaming mr sinatra please mr sinatra please please mr sinatra and the security was holding her back they were getting a limo and frank finally turned around and he said what what is it what he walked back to her she said mr sinatra my husband is home sick very very ill and uh if you could sign an autograph it would mean the world to him and he said sure and he signed me the autograph and she said oh what beautiful cufflinks they were thousand dollar cufflinks they're very expensive cufflinks i know where he got them and she said, he said, thank you. And she said, beautiful. He signed the autograph and he took the cufflinks off and he said, gave them to her. And he said, give these to your husband. She said, oh, no, no, no. I was just admiring them. And he said, no, I want your husband to have them. Now we get in the limousine and I said to him, Frank, that was beautiful. But why did you do that? He said, Tommy, if you possess something that you can't give away, then you don't possess it. It possesses you. And, and I never, ever forgot that. He said, it's okay if somebody said, gee, I like your Mercedes Benz and you don't give it to them. But the truth is, he said, you're, when you're shaving and you're looking at that guy in the mirror, you got to admit to that guy, that car owns you because you can't give it away. And he said, nothing you have is yours. Nothing. He said, Aristotle Onassis, the second he died, that mansion, that yacht, that private jet, all those things transferred. The second he died, they transferred. That shirt you have on you, if you die tomorrow, somebody will be wearing it. We're only using those things, you know, so nothing you own. So it, it, it you know, that, and, and then in, in, in closing, on his 82nd birthday, I went to his house. He, he was very ill and he died five months later. And at, at sitting around was all of, a lot of his friends, Gregory Peck and his wife, Veronique, and, and um, Sidney Portier and his wife, Joanne, and, and Jack Lemon and his wife, Felicia and um, Robert Wagner, Joe St. John, Kirk Douglas and his wife Anne, and we're waiting for the cake to come out. And <clears throat> um, Frank was off on the side, not well. We didn't know whether he was quite with us. Sometimes he'd be with us, sometimes he wouldn't. And he was eating over, and the woman was helping him eat, the woman that took care of him. And, uh, and somebody said, gee, where's the best place to live? Making small talk, waiting for the cake to come out. And Gregory Peck said, um, Veronique and I have a villa in France, and we like it there. And uh, Kirk Douglas, uh, I mean, uh, Robert Wagner, Joe St. John said, we have a home in Aspen and we like it there. And Frank in the corner with his head down said, the best place to live is where your friends are. And everybody turned around and went, whoa, whoa, yeah. My point of this story is, here's a man, arguably the greatest career show business has ever known. Oscars, Emmys, the, all the awards, amassed a fortune, hit records. In the end, it wasn't about any of those things. It was about relationships. That was the last lesson Frank Sinatra taught. Uh, Frank Sinatra is like Buddha. Right? That's unbelievable. <laughs> wow. <laughs> He'll say one sentence and it's a, a life lesson. Jeez. That's incredible. That's yeah. amazing. Well, thank you, Mr. Dreesen. We really yeah, appreciate you, you so taking much. the time. This, is, I, this has been great. It really has been amazing and, and uh, looking forward to all the future stuff that you have planned and you were talking about. And looking forward to when you come to Boston. Okay. Yeah. It's really great talking to both of you. Have a, and, and much success in the future. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Okay. Right, I, know you guys, I know you guys are saying, I thought he had never shut up. Not at all, man. No. He can listen to you forever. We, yeah, <laughs> we can do another hour. Uh, yeah. so we'll, we'll do that again sometime. All right. Oh, we'd love Thanks, it. Thanks, Mr. Jason. Okay. Thanks. Take care.